remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he didn't believe in Jesus growing up. He was convinced of who Jesus was after he saw him crucified and then saw him alive again after his crucifixion. And James began, became the first pastor of the first church of Jesus. It was based in Jerusalem. And so his flock has now been scattered, been scattered because of persecution. Their lives are hard and their lives are difficult. And if anyone might get a pass for what comes out of their mouths, it would be people who are, who are suffering and people who are having to, to find new ways of living and existing and surviving. But yet it's in that context that James is going to speak these words to them. And so he says this in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we can see just in the heart of this one sentence the main concern that James has. And that's for his original audience. And now for you and I who get to, to overhear what he said to them, for them and for us to learn to bridle our tongues. Uh, James has already surfaced this issue. We've looked at it a few weeks ago when he said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And James is going to surface this issue for us when we get to chapter 3 when he says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Wow, those are, those are some strong words from James, aren't they? James seems to be dialed in on the potential of human beings like you and me to use our words in very destructive ways. And in fact, throughout this letter, he seems very concerned that we would understand how our words are very telling about us. James says that we use our tongue, for example, to justify ourselves by blaming God. We flatter other people with our tongue, especially those who are uh, in, a, in a position to give us some kind of advantage. We use our tongues for careless speech, to claim a superficial faith, to praise God and to curse others, to boast about ourselves. James used that image of a, of a forest being set on fire by just a small spark and compared the tongue to it. But I was wondering this week, I, I wonder if James knew some of the destructive technologies that we would have today, like heat-seeking missiles, and to think about how our words can be launched out of us and how they can cause all kinds of harm and destruction. James is speaking about the tongue, the mouth. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. So that's why James, in chapter 1, verse 26, says that we need to learn to bridle our tongues. That word bridle just simply means to control, to hold in check, to curb, to sway, to restrain. Now we normally think of bridles as those instruments that we use with horses to control them, to bridle them, to restrain them, to steer them. And so it seems kind of weird to take... A, something you would use with an animal that is that big and that strong and apply it to something that's so small and seemingly not strong. 
James wants us to learn how to control and to bridle and to, to sway, to steer, and to train our tongues. And he uses two words in this passage. One is religious and one is religion. Let's just dial in on that just a little bit. The term religion is used just basically to describe outward forms or rituals a person uses when participating in worship. It can be used to describe what we're doing here this morning as we gather together and sing praises, confess our sins, open the scriptures, take communion, receive the blessing to go back out into this world. All these things can be categorized by that. The word can also be used just simply to worship or to, to give importance to something. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, it's used to describe the worship of angels. And so someone says, well, I'm not a religious person, but I consider myself to be spiritual. And look, I get that. I, I think we live in a time where that word religion, to call someone religious, has a very negative connotation, or it can, seeming to imply that someone is, is fake or insincere or shallow in what they're saying. But let's just run with that word spiritual. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm more comfortable calling myself spiritual than I am uh, religious. I know many Christians are as well. And so that's why that word religious is, is very... Um, useful for us. The Greek word itself is not easily translatable into English, but a modern equivalent would be spiritual. That's a perfectly valid way of putting it. And so James is saying, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This person's worship is worthless. This person's heart that they say they give to the Lord is actually not functioning in that way. Here James tells us, that we can actually deceive our hearts. Now, we are versed in this church with James chapter, or James, Jeremiah chapter 17 that says, the heart is deceitful above all things. We have this, this core of us that, that deceives us, but now James kind of makes a twist on that and says, well, when we don't bridle our tongues, we're actually deceiving our hearts. In fact, this idea of deception is front and center in James chapter 1. He's already told us to not be deceived. He's also warned us about deceiving ourselves. And now he talks about the possibility of deceiving our own hearts. Now, mind, mind you, he's not talking about people who are outside the Christian faith. He's talking to people who are followers of Jesus, who, who say that they want to live for him, that he's made all the difference in their life. These are the people that he's warning about deception. And so James tells us that if a person does not bridle their tongue, this person's religion, their spirituality is worthless. That word worthless simply means empty, profitless, devoid of force, deceptive, fruitless, useless, pointless. This is my way of summarizing what James is saying here. Those who think that they are spiritual yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue are fooling themselves and their Christianity is pointless. What do you think of what James is saying here? Someone says, ouch, that hurts, right? Seriously. Seriously, that hurts. James cannot be serious, can he? But James is. As a Hebrew, he's well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures and knows passages like this one found in the book of Proverbs. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. He wants his his friends who are seeking to follow Jesus in a very difficult situation to know that they need to bridle their tongues even in the difficulties they find themselves in. James knows that. 
He's versed in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, but he also knows what his brother Jesus said. There's this one occasion when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, accused Jesus of performing exorcisms by the power of the prince of demons. And in that moment, Jesus turns to them and says these words, You brood of vipers. And by the way, Jesus is not just trying to call people's names here. He's using biblical imagery, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the, and the serpent and its offspring, the one who deceived humanity. He's trying to get them to understand the way they're functioning. He called them, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of what's treasured up in your heart come the words that you and I speak. The reason why Jesus cares about your words is because Jesus cares about your heart. And so James, in just a very short verse, is drawing not only on the wisdom of the Hebrew Scriptures, but also the teachings of his brother. And he puts it in a very short and succinct way. If anyone thinks that they are religious or spiritual or a follower of Jesus Christ and yet does not bridle his or her own tongue, does not rein it in, does not control it, James says we're deceiving ourselves. And what we say we believe is actually pointless. You see, James, he seems to think that if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you believe that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you follow him in the way and the truth and the life, that that should affect everything about you, and especially the words that you speak. And so let's just camp out here for a few moments as we reflect on what James has taught and what we know that Jesus cares about, our heart and our words. And, re- and just think through three points of application. Here's the first point of application for us. Let's receive the diagnosis here. You see, the truth is we don't so much have a problem with our tongues as we have a problem with our hearts. The tongue, spiritually speaking, is not connected to our throats. It's connected to the core of who we are. So let's just take that phrase that Jesus used. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now the heart in biblical language, is not the actual organ that is beating. Not most of the time. Rather, it's used just to describe the core of who we are. And Jesus says, the core of you speaks. And so the slander or disparagement or character assassination or misrepresentation or misleading statements or lies and dishonesty or deceit are found on your tongue. It's because they are found first in your heart. One commentator mentioning these words of Jesus said, there is a living, organic connection between the people we are on the inside and the lives we lead out in the world. Whatever fruit we produce, whether good or evil, is rooted in the true condition of our souls. We can only produce the kind of fruit 
that is in our nature to produce. The reason we say the things we say and do the things that we do is that we are the people we are. So if I can just tightly summarize what we're getting at this morning, it would be simply this. My words reveal my heart. Your words reveal your heart. That's the inescapable conclusion of what Jesus is saying here. Let's dive down on this. Your words demonstrate your heart. Your words illustrate what's in your heart. Your words prove, they confirm what's in your heart. Your words let people see what is in your heart. Your words give you an idea of what's in your heart. And so if your words are critical, you have a what heart? A critical heart. If your words are mean, you have a mean heart. If your words are rude, you have a rude heart. If your words are dismissive, you have a dismissive heart. Someone says, well, if they weren't the way they are, I wouldn't have to use the words I use. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I know it has mine. Paul Tripp, in his book, War of Words, which I would commend to, your, to you for your advantage, said this. He said, word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasions for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. Did you catch that? Let me, let me read that one more time. Word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are, the, they are only the occasions for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. Sinclair Ferguson, in an article called The Power of the Tongue, said, Our mouth is the hinge on which the door into our soul swings open in order to reveal our spirit. In effect, our words are like so many media people rushing to file the reports on the condition of our souls. So let me stop and ask us this question. If you were to honestly examine the fruit of your tongue, what would it reveal about your heart? Think about the fruit of your tongue this past week. What does that teach you about what's going on in your heart? Think about this last month or this last year, or maybe the last decade of your life and the, the way you tend to use your tongue and your words and your mouth. What does that tell you about what's going on in your heart? My friends, I know this is a very uncomfortable uh, question to, to have to, real, to wrestle with here, but, but if we wrestle with it, there, there can be great insight. There can be great wisdom to be learned from this. There can be great growth in you and me, if we really stop and wrestle with this and become honest with ourselves. I imagine maybe some of us are, are not really in tune with what's coming out of our mouths. And if that's the case, let me just ask you to ask some people around you for feedback. What do you hear coming out of my mouth? As, as you've noticed and watched me and the way I interact with people, what have you noticed come out of me? Let me give you some words of counsel, my friends. Stop saying 
I didn't mean that. You actually did mean that at the moment you said it. You may now regret what you said, but you did mean it in that moment. So instead of trying to make yourself look better by saying, I didn't mean that, why not just own it? Why not just come out and say, I'm, I'm sorry for hurting you? That was mean, that was careless, and I wish those words didn't come out of me, but they did, and I can't put them back. I'm sorry, would, would you forgive me? That would be a better tactic to take than trying to say, I, I didn't mean that. Or how about this? I, I've noticed in our culture, especially in some high-profile cases where someone was caught doing something wrong, when they issue their apology, they say these words, that is not who I am. We need to actually not say that because that is exactly who you are. Those words came out of you. They came out of your heart. They came from deep within your soul. So instead of saying, that's not who I am, why don't you say, I want to be better than that? I'm sorry that I hurt you with these words. I want to be better than that. Would you, would you please forgive me? I'm so sorry. That would be a much better way of handling it. Or how about this? Sometimes when, when people are confronted about something they, they'd rather not see about themselves, they would just say, well, I'm a terrible person. And when people say that, they usually don't mean it. It's not a sign of remorse. Rather, it's a tactic to manipulate others, to make them feel bad for, for bringing up the issue, and to, to come to you and say, you're not a bad person. So it, it flips the script. So now it's the person who actually brought this up that has the real problem and accusing you of being a terrible person. So, so what, if, what if instead of trying to put them on the defensive, you would just simply own what it is that you said, what it is that you did? Because, my friends, what you need most in that moment is grace, not self-validation. What you need most in that moment is forgiveness, not self-justification. What you need in that moment is to come to grips with what you've done, what you've said, so that you can change the kind of person that you will be. The prophet Isaiah, when he was given a glimpse of the holiness of God, was immediately convicted about what was coming out of him in terms of the words he said. And he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He didn't try to justify himself. He didn't try to excuse it. He didn't try to, to seek to, to get people to feel sorry for him. He actually called a prophetic woe upon himself. Woe is me. I am under, literally, I am coming apart, and I am a man of unclean lips. And because of what he did, what he owned there, he was, he was able to experience the, the renewing grace of God in his life. So that's the first point of application. Let's, let's receive the diagnosis. Here's the second one. Let's remember that Jesus was literally wounded by our words. When Jesus went to the cross, and had the sins of his people placed upon him. Part of what was placed upon him were the words that came out of you, the words that hurt and bring harm and destruction. So Jesus was literally wounded by your words, first and foremost, before anyone else was wounded by them. So let's, let's remember that. Because when we do, we can see the gravity 
we can see the sharp point on the edge of our tongue that brought about the death of the Son of God. Look how Peter describes Jesus, especially the words that he said or didn't say. He said he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why do we need to remember this? Because Jesus was the perfect human being. He always used his words appropriately. What he said was exactly what needed to be said in that moment, and it came out full of grace and truth. And because of that, because of the the good that was coming out of him that everyone saw because of what they heard, he was the perfect person to sacrifice himself for people like you and me. And so my friends, I, I understand, believe me, I understand that this is convicting to think about. We're here talking about this, and I've been wrestling with it all week. I've had to come to grips with my own uh, shortfallings and failures and the ways I've harmed people this week. And, and, and just, I mean, I wanted to skip this verse, if I can be honest with you. <laughs> and I know that you would probably like, ah, we need to move on to happier things. And don't worry, James is going to keep digging at us in the weeks to come, chipping away, trying to make us more like Jesus Christ. So my friends, as, as you feel the weight of conviction this morning, don't condemn yourself because Christ doesn't condemn you. When you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are washed away. What you need right now is the reminder and the renewal of that grace in your life. So in a moment after the message, we're going to have just a moment um, as we come to this communion table to, to just be quiet and settle our hearts. And that would be a perfect time just to lean into the grace that is yours. You do not stand or fall by the words that you've said. You stand and fall by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the best news that you and I can hear. So our first point of application was, let's receive the diagnosis. The second was, let's remember that Jesus was literally wounded by our words. And here's the third and final one. Let's bring our words under the lordship of King Jesus. This is really what James is getting at here. When he tells us we need to bridle our tongues, he's writing to people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe that his way of life results in us becoming better human beings. And so part of that is bringing even our words under the lordship of Jesus. King David in the book of Psalms prayed this way, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What if we prayed this prayer every day this week? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And what if we heard back from God saying words like this, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with my muzzle, with a muzzle. What if we heard God saying, I want you to join me in setting a guard over your mouth so that you will not sin with your tongue? And of course, we need to beg God for a clean heart, right? <laughs> if what's coming out of us tells us that there's something wrong with our hearts, we need God to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. We need God to to work the heart of Christ more deeply into you and me, right? So that what comes out of us actually reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful proverb that says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. What an amazing image that is. A tree of life. Remember the garden 
in Genesis chapter 3, held a, a tree of life. And in the new heavens and new earth, there is a tree of life. But here, you and I can become trees of life. We can become these people that others find, find shade and shelter with because of the gentleness that is on our tongue. So my friends, I want you to imagine with me. What if everyone in Bryan College Station bridled their tongue? Can you imagine how this place would be different? What if everyone in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your classes were able to bridle their tongue like, like James teaches here? Wouldn't that be something? What if, what if just the Christians in our community could bridle their tongues? What if Christians who are quick to judge and quick to criticize could actually put a bridle on their tongue and ask, what is the best way for me to speak in this situation? What if just the Christians here at Mercy Hill Church could learn to bridle our tongues? What if when we found ourselves in pressure situations, just like these early friends of James found themselves in, what came out of us in those pressure situations were actually words of life, words of blessing, words of encouragement, So Mercy Hill, in a world where sticks and stones can break our bones and words can deeply wound us, may you be a people who are so transformed by the gospel of Jesus that you bridle your tongues and steer them, that life-giving words may bring healing and encouragement and hope and a thousand other good things to come when we bring the power of the tongue under the Lordship.